Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. What's going on? Uh, not a whole lot. I mean, I feel like it's been a really busy week for a short week. Yeah. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, it was yeah Monday was holiday. All that. Um, uh, I've got some interesting plans this weekend. We're sort of creeping up on Halloween My favorite uh, holiday, time. for the record. One, not, not one of mine, but we can... Come back to that. Uh, this weekend, I'm going to uh, a screening of a movie called Practical Magic. Oh, yeah. I know that sure. movie. Sure. Well. Seen that movie? Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, my wife uh, and her friends are like obsessed with this. And it's one of those things where it's like I begrudgingly watched this movie a couple Halloweens ago. And now I, I actually- Are you obsessed now, too? Yeah. Well, I'm not- a, that <laughs> Obsessed is a little strong. But it is kind of funny because it's the kind of movie- This is about- This is with- uh, Sandra Bullock yes. and Nicole Kidman and their witch sisters. Yes. And they have a whole bunch of witch adventures. It's a whole long line of cinema and television that involves witch sisters. Well, from like, that's that, a common, and from, from like, that era, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's just the kind of movie they don't make Hocus anymore. Pocus. Yeah, right. It's yep. the kind of movie they don't really make anymore. Like, it's, it's also uh, um, Charmed was mm-hmm. in that same yeah, Charmed line. was in there. There's, a, the teenage witch. there's a reboot of Charmed that's been on for a couple seasons, which uh, I will out myself that I watch a lot of teen television. Oh, is that the sure. one with Sally Draper? Uh, no, that one is the remake the of uh, Sabrina. Sabrina. Oh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Sorry, but yes. the remake of Charmed is on the CW, where oh, wow. all great teen Very TV cool. shows are. Really Shannon Doherty it's on actually, it? She's not, oh, and it's okay. the better for it. It's, oh, it's actually right. pretty good. Uh, anyway, witches. Turns out they're in again. <laughs> Who could have ever seen it? That's I don't what, even know I mean, what that's what you. people tune into this show for, witch, witch media content. You know, look, I feel like <laughs> this, witch was, energy. this was a good way to open up the show because we're, we're going to... Yeah, because I like that it was something light and fun and a little seasonal, which I like anyway, but yeah. we're getting into some really heavy topics, yeah, so it is we a heavy needed show. a moment of levity before we dive right yeah, in. Clear yes. the palette. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we had a really great uh, chat with uh, Dan Siegel, our senior trials guy. We've got the big opioid trial coming up next week. It looks like there might be a settlement before that ever happens. Yeah. Um, we had a really great chat with him that you're going to hear later, just breaking down the you know the background of the case and what this settlement might look like and what to watch for at the trial if it actually uh, does go down. Um, but before then, we have some... Yeah, before we get to that... Um... Very, um, very serious story. We have some other serious stories, um, uh, which, uh, first of all, we're back on the uh, back on the sort of malfeasance at Big Law beat, right? Yeah, Bill? the bad stuff, bad stuff at Big Law beat. It's mm-hmm. alliterative. Um, yeah, so we're talking about DLA Piper this week, uh, one of the biggest firms in the country, one of the biggest firms in the world. Yeah. Um, cut ties with uh, one of their practice group co-chairs um, following accusations a couple weeks back from a female partner that he had sexually assaulted her and then that, that the firm had retaliated against her after she had uh, made that made that known. Yeah, I mean, this um, this is something we talked about in a production meeting a few weeks ago mm-hmm. when the accusations were, yeah. were leveled, um, but we're already at the point where someone's been let, let go over it. So can you kind of tell us how we got there so quickly? Yeah, it moved quickly. So t- two weeks ago, um, DLA Piper partner um, Vanina Guerrero filed a charge with the EEOC, um, sort of a formal process to file complaints like this, um, containing accusations against uh, Louis LaHoe, who is the head of the firm's uh, emerging U.S. emerging growth and venture capital practice. Mm-hmm. Guerrero claimed that LaHoe cornered her and groped her on business trips uh, and then and then threatened her job after she spurned him. And she also says that after she reported this to the firm, she was taken off uh, a very lucrative deal, and she was told that she was underperforming. Um, 
And and she says that the firm later, rather than investigating him, invest, started investigating her for inappropriate behavior. That's kind of the worst case scenario that you would hear of in these allegations. Yeah, it's sort of it fits a it fits a fact pattern that we've seen many times, but it's it's a particularly sort of um, tough set of facts. Um, so she says that Guerrero says that they had known each other um, from working at a previous firm. And part of these accusations are that she believes that he recruited her to DLA specifically for this idea of trying to court her. Um, uh, so soon after she joined the firm on a dinner trip to Hong Kong, she says that um, he he asked about her husband and suggested that she could, quote, do better um, then specifically offered to put her on to more work and share his book of work. And um, on another business trip, she specifically describes this scenario in a hotel room where he got really drunk and allegedly groped her. Um, so after she, she says that after repeatedly rebuffing him, um, that that uh, he took her off this really, really big deal. Um, she says that she, at that point, she then um, reported some of this stuff to the, um, the managing partner for the Northern California office for the Silicon Valley office. Um, and rather than taking action, she herself was taken off of off of work and faced further retaliation. She says there was there were these bullying deadlines and various other scrutiny that she thinks was the result of of. Uh, her voicing these problems. So, I mean, these are very serious accusations. And um, the I- the idea that, I mean, it, what makes it sort of even more insidious, this idea that she came with him from another firm and it was sort of even yeah. more coordinated than, you know, these things typically tend to be. Mm-hmm. How did it all come together? The firm, like we said, has, has acted pretty quickly here. What's, when this came on their radar, what was sort of yeah. going on? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you believe if you believe the accusations, they certainly didn't act quick enough, considering that she, they didn't right. do anything when she first yeah. voiced it. But um, uh, but so last Thursday, you know, these these allegations came out uh, to, about two weeks ago, and last Thursday, um, Guerrero's accusations were backed up by a woman named Leah Christensen, who was a former attorney in DLA Piper's Office of General Counsel. She had resigned in June. Um, she posted a, an open letter online. The quote. You have told the truth about the culture of intimidation and oppression at DLA Piper, and you have told the truth about Louis LaHoe. And then, so a day later on Friday, the firm sent out this email that said it was, quote, in the best interest of the firm that we part ways with Louis LaHoe. Uh, we are saddened that this type of allegation has arisen at our firm. Uh, we have taken this claim with the utmost seriousness. Um, they made a point to mention that the, despite an ongoing investigation into it, that they hadn't yet substantiated these claims or anything like that. Um, take that as you will. Yeah. Uh, but um, they made a point to say that in their statement, so I thought it was worth noting. Braden Campbell wrote a bunch of stories about this for us, and one thing that uh, was pretty interesting was the aspect of arbitration in this, which we've talked about a lot. Can mm-hmm. you sort of break down that bit of it? Yeah, I mean, we've talked, the context is that we've talked about the use of arbitration clauses broadly in the context of the Me Too movement in terms of yeah. just employees in general, that they have critics say that they can be used to silence claims like this, but then also in the context of the law firm, where we've seen a lot of discrimination and bias lawsuits in the last two years. Um, There has been a movement among uh, students at elite law schools to get these things removed from the employment contracts of uh, associates going to these big firms. And so anyway, so Guerrero uh, specifically called on the firm here not to enforce it. It was sort of 
the wording was, you know, it wasn't direct, but to not push this into arbitration, which would mm-hmm. indicate that, yeah. that she has one of these things. Um, the quote was, I implore you to do the right thing and take a stand against a practice that everyone knows is wrong and allow me to litigate my claims in court. So uh, whether or not the firm does that remains to be seen, but um, it's it's definitely uh, it's it's threading into a, a, a sort of broader narrative that we've seen with with these kind of lawsuits. Well, unfortunately, the sort of sexual misconduct in big law tree was ripe this week. We have another story um, that's actually detailing a pretty heated feud between a couple of you know legal sort of titans uh, in New York, um, as um, Alan Dershowitz the um, famous Harvard law professor. He was on the O.J. Simpson defense team, a bunch of other famous cases. Um, he's currently facing a defamation suit stemming from his connection, his friendship um, with the deceased financier and sex criminal Jeffrey Epstein. Um, Dershowitz uh, was, una- was unable to get this defamation case uh, thrown out this week, but he did score um, a sort of a very interesting win by disqualifying the firm of David Boys. Uh, who is representing his accuser. Really interesting sort of dynamic playing out in in, uh, Manhattan. Yeah, I don't 100% want to talk about Jeffrey Epstein. No, uh, yeah. But I do think this is an interesting one where we have some sort of legal titans in Dershowitz and and David Boyes and and their interaction. So we do need to get into it. Can you give us a little primer on where we are in this case and in that bigger Epstein story? Yeah, like you say, the case is certainly unpleasant to talk about, but it's um, very interesting news. Um, so the case brought against Dershowitz was brought by this woman named Virginia Jufri, and she claims her sort of central allegation is that, um, Epstein lent her out for sex, uh, with Dershowitz when she was a teenager. She was one of the sort of Jeffrey Epstein, you know, victims. Um, but the case is only tangentially about the fact that, that that allegedly happened to her. Um, it is a defamation case against Dershowitz for the manner in which he has denied, he has denied the allegations. Hmm. And in doing so, he has, um, he's, he's, it, it, he's not just flatly denied them, he's calling, he's called her a liar and he's basically called her a, a scam artist that is sort of looking to extort him at, in, in terms of like sort of roping him into this Epstein thing. So that is what the case is about. She is claiming that he is defaming her yeah. by gotcha. questioning her motives and like saying she's trying to scam him by accusing him of this of this sexual of this sex crime. Yeah. Um we're still in the early days of that case. Um but the the New York judge who's hearing it um like I said um Dershowitz tried to get it dismissed at a very early stage that was rejected. Um but more interestingly as I said she um disqualified uh the firm of Boy Schiller and Flexner um which is representing Jufri um and David Boy's sort of figures into this as well. So what's the situation with Boyce Schiller, because that's yeah you know, the case itself is it's particularly interesting for me. I mean, as a as like a media law case, but I mean, yeah. For, what's the wh- but this week we're talking about the whole disqualification thing with yeah. with Boys. What happened there? Well, Dershowitz and Boys have developed something of a. I mean, you know, the the sort of Miami papers have deemed it the sort of like rivalry. You know, sort of like their their ne- nemeses over this this case. Um, Boys, of course, is a famous. You know, I mean, I don't even know if we need to say that anymore. What famous appellate litigators argued a million in, um, interesting cases. Also, then was sort of tied up in the in the Weinstein allegations. Yeah. That's right. Weinstein legal team, a lot of angles here to that. Um, but for the purposes we're talking about here, Dershowitz wanted Boys and his firm disqualified for a couple of different reasons. For one thing, he said that some years ago, he, had re- he Dershowitz, had reached out to David Boys to represent him, sort of in connection with Jufri's allegation, and, had, and in doing so, 
had shared some bits of legal strategy with him, which basically creates a conflict of interest, which yeah. we've seen okay. a million times where it's like, I had preliminary meetings with counsel here. I, right. They are privy to the things we're going to be talking about. They should, they, they're, they're conflicted out. Now, interestingly, the judge did not rule on the conflict argument. Um, she tossed Boyce because now the firm itself, Boyce Schiller Flexner, is implicated in this sort of central conflict between Jufri and Dershowitz. Uh, basically, Dershowitz has alleged that Boy's attorneys are sort of helping Jufri, you know, craft this extortionist plot. She he, she is saying he she, uh, he is saying that she is mounting this legal case, you know, with the lawyers in full knowledge that these claims are dubious in an attempt to get money from him. Mm-hmm. That is a big bold accusation. Definitely, and so basically, you know, and Jufri has basically now taken that allegation, and it's in her complaint that he said he right. is saying that my lawyers are doing this with me. It's not true. He's defamed me. This is part of it is. Mm-hmm. But you can see now that this is bringing the actual conduct of boys and the law firm into the actual central action of the dispute. They're right. not just here being an advocate for her in terms of uh, legal advice. They yeah. are. They're basically a party at, now. at issue. Yeah. That's that's yeah. The, at the actual you know conflict. Um, so those are the grounds upon which Boy Schiller was disqualified from the case this week. Um, but the uh, the the really sort of weird part of this this cropped up. This was on our radar a couple of weeks ago. Um, this all kind of came to light when Dershowitz um, at some point, and it's still kind of indeterminate when this all went down. Sort of surreptitiously recorded a phone conversation that he had with Boys with with David mm-hmm. Boys himself. Um, and he basically says that in that phone conversation, Boyes said that Jufri is not credible. She's not a credible witness. And this, of course, would, if, if true, would aid Dershowitz's argument yeah. that these are false claims and, mm-hmm. that, the, and that if it's, if what he's saying is true, then he, then, then, um, you know, that's a defense against defamation. Um, so, uh, basically what came to pass was that once the court got wind of this phone call, um, we still the the public still hasn't seen a transcript of this, but the court has it. It's under seal. Dershowitz basically made clear he would call Boys himself, David Boys, to the stand to talk about this conversation they yeah. had, right. and said, "Hey, why did you say this? And if she's not credible, then why are you representing her? And is and how can I be defamed? And all of this." As if we hadn't already laid the groundwork of of Boys Schiller being I know centrally involved here. This is. Even one step further yeah. than that. Yeah, so I mean, basically he's saying, like, you can't have Boy Schiller Flexner lawyers cross-examining their <laughs> boss. I mean, yeah. that's right. basically what he said. You know, sort of the, like I said, like we're going back to, you know, the advocate or the witness and all these things. So, yeah, and and the judge basically said, you know, my hands are tied by this rule. It's like, they they will be disqualified. So, um, boys, the, the firm says they're going to appeal, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but it's very interesting just in terms of, I mean, it's obviously a serious case, but in terms of... You know, when you get like these very high powered lawyers involved, like, you know, we, we've talked about how these conflicts pop up in different contexts. Um, but the fact that, you know, they're going through all these legal machinations, that's such a, a high stakes um, case. It's very interesting. After hundreds of thousands of deaths and years of litigation, the opioid epidemic's big day in court has arrived. Or has it? A landmark trial is scheduled to kick off Monday against drug makers accused of fueling the crisis, but there are increasing signs that a gigantic settlement could avert the whole thing. To explain the entire complex litigation and the potential deal, we're joined by Daniel Siegel, Law360's senior trials reporter who's headed to Cleveland to cover the trial if it actually goes down. Welcome to the show, Dan. 
Hey, thanks for having me. So um, we're we're here talking about the the court cases and all the legal action that has happened with the opioid crisis. But I thought um, a good place to start would be to for you to sort of set the stage for us. Walk us through, you know, how we've gotten here. What 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 has what has happened to create this opioid crisis, and and how has it sort of unfolded? Yeah, sure. And you know, this is pretty undisputed information here. You know, it's come out in some of these cases, but is also, you know, sort of, it's pretty well known that in the late 90s, uh, pharmaceutical companies, you know, really came out and told doctors that, hey, we've got this new class of painkillers, these opioid pain relievers, and uh, they're not particularly addictive. You can prescribe them a lot, and, you know, it's going to be fine, and it turns out that really wasn't the case, and uh, the market got flooded with a lot of opioid painkillers, and people did get addicted, People did start diverting them, uh, you know, using them without a prescription, and people did, you know, turn to cheaper illegal drugs like heroin uh, when their prescriptions ran out. And, you know, it just escalated to the point that, you know, there have been probably more than 400,000 Americans who have uh, died, Mm. you know, deaths linked to opioid overdoses in the last 20 years. And the last couple of years, you know, 2016, 2017, you're seeing over 40,000 uh, deaths specifically linked to opioid overdoses, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, which is probably around two-thirds of all overdose deaths in the country uh, for those years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this was something that you know people had been reading about and hearing about and were, of course, on the precipice, perhaps, of a huge trial. But the legal blowback here was a little bit um, slow to materialize. Can you talk about sort of the once this got on people's radar, what the what the legal action you know began to look like? Right. Yeah, it is interesting in that there were data, I think, showing sort of this increase in opioid use, you know, going back, you know, into the early 2000s. But it really wasn't until the mid late 2000s that we saw any movement. Uh, Purdue, the company that makes OxyContin, actually uh, had criminal charges against them and settled those for around 600 million uh, in 2007. But, you know, even after that, it, it really wasn't super big in the civil courts and starting in you know 2014 around then you know chicago filed suit in 2014 i believe they were the first city to do so yeah uh, other counties municipalities they started filing their own lawsuits yeah and yeah. as happened you know you get over a hundred of these pending cases all bringing relatively similar claims uh, and so the federal courts uh, brought these cases together in what's called an mdl multi-district mm-hmm. litigation and you know once that was rolling i think it's easier for other counties cities governments to sort of join in. And, you know, pretty soon, uh, within a few years, there were over 2,000 pending cases in that MDL. So explain to us what the rough outlines of the legal issue in the MDL is. I mean, what what is the, basically, what is the accusation? I mean, obviously, it's these towns and cities on one side, and it's the drug makers on the other. But what are they saying the drug makers did? What is the, you know, what is the top line idea of what's being decided in this MDL? Yeah, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It's just that the drug makers and also in these in this MDL case, the drug distributors, the companies that actually, you know, got the drugs from the companies into the pharmacies, that they knew that the opioids were addictive. They knew that they were having this impact uh, in terms of overdose deaths, addictions, and, you know, just that they hid that information. They kept it internally. They told a different story to doctors and the public to what they, you know, knew amongst themselves, and they made a lot of money off it. It's kind of a similar argument to, for example, the cases against the tobacco companies yeah. years ago. 
Um, and as we hinted at at the top, um, it's this is materializing even as we are talking with you about this uh, on late Thursday afternoon. Um, there are rumblings of a pretty huge settlement that's possibly in the offing here. Can you tell us what you know about that, what that might look like, and how that would affect it, uh, how that would affect this stuff going forward? Yeah, of course. You know, our Law 360 colleague, uh, Jeff Overly, you know, really landed some reporting on this yesterday. But, you know, it looks like there's a sort of deal on the table uh, from the drug companies that would include around $50 billion, both in, you know, cash and free drugs and services, uh, you know, really being spearheaded by three of uh, the giant drug distributors in the country, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson. Uh, they would contribute $18 billion. Johnson & Johnson would pay uh, $4 billion. Teva Pharmaceuticals, another drug maker, would donate drugs over 10 years. So this is a huge, huge deal. It would wrap up this trial coming up Monday, as well as, you know, the thousands of other cases we were talking about. And, you know, kind of interestingly, uh, according to the reporting we have, the settlement talks are being led by state attorneys general uh, mm -hmm. from Texas, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and North Carolina, you know, not by the counties and cities that are sort of lining up to go to trial next. So you mentioned that this big deal involves certain companies, involves the, these three big distributors. Um, put, put that deal in context for the listeners. I mean, if, it's, if that deal goes through, what's left of this litigation? What happens going forward? Well, you know, I don't want to say 100% one way or the other, because obviously this is a deal in discussion, and we don't know exactly sure. what it's going to look like if it does go through. But I think the idea of a deal like that is it would pretty much wrap everything up. You know, that that size of a deal with that many parties, the whole idea there is to get, uh, you know, a certain level of finality uh, for everybody mm -hmm. and basically just make it into the governments and the cities getting money from the drug companies going forward and not fighting in court anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and we've already know, seen some other companies settle out, right? That's exactly right. You know, Purdue, who I mentioned, you know, they're sort of the number one bad guy here. And, you know, they made OxyContin and there's some very damaging evidence about their behavior. You know, they've already signed a big global deal to get out of this bellwether as well as, well as the rest of the cases um, coming afterwards, you know, in which the Sackler family who, you know, founded Purdue is going to give $3 billion of their own money, and you know, lots more. But not just them, you know, Johnson & Johnson uh, cut a smaller deal to get out of just the Monday trial. Um, you know, most of the drug makers who were involved did so, you know, cutting smaller deals in the, you know, 5 to $30 million range. And... You know, really, that's worth mentioning that I think the deadline of having a trial coming up on Monday, you know, really pushes these companies to want to settle. Mm -hmm. uh, if everybody else settles and you're the only company left in the trial, you could be left holding the bag for, you know, a really huge judgment. You know, like we saw in Oklahoma uh, very recently, Purdue had settled out and Johnson & Johnson, you know, ended up being hit with a $572 million judgment. Yeah. Um, so that's we're obviously going to sort of keep our eyes on that moving target of a of a potential settlement. But on the off chance that we do actually go to trial and these companies sort of remain in the fight, uh, very briefly, I mean, what will you be, what will you, and what should everybody else be looking for in terms of like the arguments that will be made and the sort of legal factors um, that may decide the case? Yeah, right. And so just to you know explain something maybe we didn't go into before, but you know, as a bellwether trial, what that means is it is like a trial balloon. It is something to see where the wind is blowing right. for all these other cases. You know, a result here doesn't apply to all 2,000 cases, but both sides, you know, they pick these specific uh, cases, these Ohio counties to go forward because they think usually, hey, these are pretty representative of what we're going to yes. see from all the other cases. So how this turns out 
you know, gives us a sense of who has a stronger position and who doesn't. Um, and, you know, I think the, the main sort of two claims here is it's called uh, public nuisance law, which yeah. is uh, not as, you know, familiar for everybody until these cases started coming along, uh, as well as fraud. So the counties are alleging, you know, directly that the drug companies, drug distributors engaged in fraud by, uh, you know, lying in terms of what they told state and federal regulators mm-hmm. about what they were doing with the drugs and the public. Uh, so they have to, you know, prove sort of intent, things like that, you know, that they were intentionally lying with what they knew there. Um, public nuisance law is a little different. It's usually used for, I don't know, maybe a factory is polluting the river in town. You know, this is a private entity that is in some way uh, inflicting this damage on sort of the, the public, the public sphere. And, you know, this is what was argued in Oklahoma, yeah. is that by pumping all these drugs into the community, you know, they really created this public hazard, this public health risk. Yeah. And you don't get direct damages for that, but you can get, you know, whatever the money it takes to repair that public nuisance. And so that's what they're seeking through a so-called abatement plan, which is here's what we think it'll take to fix the crisis. All right. Well, Dan, well, uh, this was uh, a a really interesting talk about a really uh, fascinating and difficult subject. Uh, We'll be watching to see if a settlement comes out. We'll be watching to see if the trial happens next week. Thanks for joining us to explain it all. Yeah, happy to uh, do it. And, you know, I'm sure we can find a time to talk while I'm in Cleveland if there's no settlement. <laughs> Absolutely. Sounds good. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and I think we need it after such a heavy show. Mm-hmm. So what are we talking about today, Alex? Well... Amber, first of all, I just want to apologize. I feel like we've had a high quotient of sports-related offbeats. You know, look, you're just giving the people <laughs> what they want. I'm the one who doesn't love sports. But I will say, you guys have been really good about picking ones where I didn't really have to understand sports. It's yeah, more this just is like not... uh, personalities and disputes of famous rich people. Let me ask you this. Are you familiar with beer? I've heard of it, sure. Are you familiar with the... Do I have to explain the concept of pouring beer onto someone else? So, secretly, I've always <laughs> wanted to throw a drink at somebody. Sure, yeah. And, okay. like, you yeah. know how, like, well, you see in movies where it's somebody's aggrieved and they just throw, like, a cocktail in someone's face? Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to do that. So, this well, is the beer this, version? This is a little bit like that. Let's right. set the scene here. Okay, so you got to wind back to uh, September 8th, which was the opening Sunday of the NFL season. Okay. The Titans were playing the Browns in Cleveland, uh... Near the end of the game, a Titans player scores a touchdown and sort of jumps into the stands, into like the first row of the stands, sort of sitting half in, half out, gets a beer dumped on him by a Browns fan. Oh, sure. Uh, The team, the Browns, uh, identified the person who they thought was the beer spiller, beer thrower in this regard, and banned that person from the stadium. However, it came to light. Uh, that they had that they had identified the wrong person. They had banned the wrong beer thrower. It's basically, That's not just great. the movie The Fugitive. Now they came out and <laughs> yes, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't pour my beer. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, so yeah, now they they a couple of days later cleared up their mistake and said, okay, this is the wrong guy. They banned someone else. They did a further investigation. But now uh, on Monday. The guy who was, you know, the wrongly banned, er- er- erroneously yeah. identified as the beer thrower, uh, filed suit in uh, Cuyahoga County Court, um, who says that the Browns owe him more than $25,000 in damages, as well as a public retraction for, uh, well, let's see, what's he saying here? Uh, negligence, defamation, negligent infliction of emotional distress, false light, and loss of consortium. 
So twenty five k for that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just damages. We always get. You got, gotta think got there's to... some kind of release for all those things on the back of the ticket, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, it's a it's a weird little complaint. Like I said, the team sort of went out and said they they had made clear they had made a mistake, and then this lawsuit gets filed. Uh, it's a very funny complaint. I just want to point this out in the uh, right. in the uh, fact. This is just in the factual allegations before we even get to the beer throwing. Yeah. The game against the Tennessee Titans did not go according to plan. The Browns committed an obscene amount of penalties and turnovers, yet somehow the deficit at the beginning of the fourth quarter was only nine points. Love this. Uh, then I feel he, like it was written by like a talk radio caller. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. And then it was like a whole I'll thing. Take my, I'll take my answer take to my, my lawsuit off the air. I'll take my damages yeah. off the air, please. Um, anyway, then he goes through a couple more graphs of what actually happened. Um then uh, this gets to the point of where he was wrongly identified by uh-huh. the team. Plaintiff states that he explained to the defendant that he hasn't been to a Cleveland Browns game in over nine years and, in fact, was home relaxing with his family, preparing for a wedding at 3 p.m. on the 8th of September in which he was performing at the, as the DJ. So he's off trying to DJ a wedding, and they are claiming he's throwing beer. Do we know, like do we know his name? Uh, yes, that, that's an important point. Thank you. Uh, the guy's name is Eric Smith. Okay. Which I think uh, yeah, that plays into it. gets yeah, into yeah. some... Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, they they also there. say, after they had sort of apologized to him, or, or well, I mean, whether they apologize is sort of at, at issue in the dispute, uh, right before we get into the claims, he says, further, the Cleveland Browns on September 12, 2019, again misidentified another individual by the name of Eric Smith. <laughs> so this is, a, this is clearly a pox on the Eric Smiths of the, of the greater Cleveland area. Wow. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, he's suing uh, for all this kind of stuff. He, he claims that basically, like, they, they called him at work. It's, like, sort of been threatening his... He's been, he's been defamed as a beer thrower on right. the Tennessee Titans, which, uh, which you can't have. I think the message that we, that we really want to send out as the Pro Se Podcast is, if you file a novelty NFL lawsuit, we will cover it. <laughs> you know, despite, yes, despite Alex apologizing for covering so many sports things in this offbeat segment, you're right. We Listen, will cover it. It's not my fault that these things bubble to the top of the news cycle. This is what people are talking about. So I'm just reporting the news. Uh, anyway, yeah, so this, the, the suits may be ongoing. Uh, just, uh, you know, take care out there if you're attending an NFL game. Or if your name's Eric Smith. Yeah, well, th- certainly. <laughs> All right, thanks for being with me today, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you again next week, guys. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Dan Siegel, and contributing reporters, Braden Campbell, Andrew Strickler, and Mike Curley. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. Our show is available on all the major podcast platforms, and we'd love it if you subscribe and also leave us a written review. It really does help other people find Pro Se. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.